0: my first assignment was, um, for Iraq, CTC Iraq. So I was tracking Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and learning all about what was going on in Iraq with Al-Qaeda at the time, which was pretty extensive back then. Um, that, these were the early days of Zarqawi. So I, I worked that account. I went to Iraq uh, for a short time and then arranged for myself by talking to the people that were running operations in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I went and talked to them quite a bit and got myself a position as a case officer, a remote base in Afghanistan.
1: This is The Terror, a podcast about 9-11, what led to it, and what happened afterward. Today, we have the privilege of talking to a gentleman who served in the war on terror in a rather unique capacity. I'm joined today by Mr. Jeff Butler, also known on the internet as Frumentarius. How are you doing, sir?
0: Good. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, people, I mean, Americans have heard of Navy SEALs cia officers although we tend to mistakenly call y'all cia agents and we've heard of <laughs> right. firefighters i've never heard of someone who did all three in their life you've got an incredible background sir
0: oh i uh there i know of a couple other guys that were seals and firefighters i don't know anybody else has been all three I, I mean it's either uh it's either really cool or it's a uh, indicator of my extremely sickle nature when it comes to career choices so you you can be the judge
1: I I just think of you as a uniquely badass person, to be honest.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad you do. I don't know if my kids see
1: you that way, but that uh, tends to be how it goes. So mm-hmm. before we get before we dive into the war on terror, um, th- this question just kind of came to me spontaneously. How how do you as a firefighter feel about 9/11 twenty years after the event? What what is that like um, for you as a first responder? Uh,
0: you know, that is, that's an interesting question because it is, it hit the firefighting community. Um, and obviously it was New York's, uh, FDNY's firefight, uh, fire department that really took the whole brunt of, uh, the attack. But the, the community of firefighters throughout America and really internationally is, it's such a brotherhood and, uh, and sisterhood that we feel, we kind of feel it for all of uh, each other when something bad happens. Um, and that was, that's the worst thing that's ever happened to the brotherhood and sisterhood of firefighters. So it's a, every year for firefighters, it's a pretty somber occasion. And um, there's, there's memorial stair climbs all over the country, um, uh, you know, honoring the 110 flights that they went up and um, honoring the 343 firefighters that were killed. And it's, it hits, it hits that community. And obviously police is probably the same um, and, and, and EMTs for that matter um across the country that those communities feel it and not deeper or you know any they don't have any more ownership of it than anyone else but they just it's a it's a it's a special and extremely sad day for that community so it and we tend to we don't dwell or wallow in it but we do we we make it a point in our each in in our own little way to kind of honor the sacrifice of uh Of the firefighters in in my case, the firefighters that, you know, went up those stairs, a lot of them knowing, you know, they may never come down those stairs. Um, so it, it does. It feels a little different being in this community.
1: Would you say that the events that happened on that day, especially just that unbelievable task of trying to put out the fires in both towers, did that, did that have an impact on like how firefighters in the U.S. today are trained and how they operate?
0: Um, it, it, it did not in the sense of, um, putting water on fire and trying to put a fire out. Um, because that's, you know, that's a, that's something that's just ingrained in us. It it had a huge impact in, um, the way that fires and and large emergency scenes are run in general. And that uh, radio communications was a big problem there. Um, that what we call the incident command system was almost non-existent and it was completely, it was completely rehashed after that. And, um, formalized so that you know the, the with the theory being and and everyone tries to put it in practice today that you run every scene from the smallest car wreck to a plane flying into the twin towers you run it the same structurally by setting command branching out as many uh, different levels of supervision as you need um, task you know task organizations functional organizations so it really changed the the firefighting community in that respect um, and the command respect and, and trying to get Communication streamlined across various agencies and, and things like that. In terms of the climbing stairs with, you know, 80 pounds of gear and hoses on your back and squirting water on a fire. I mean, there, you know, that, that rarely ever changes, uh, because it's just so fundamentally basic in many ways. Now there's nothing to say that a, a jet fuel propelled fire in a high rise building is, is <laughs> in any way normal or common, but you know, if any, If any agency could have handled that, it would have been FDNY who deals with a lot of fires in tall buildings.
1: If I'm remembering correctly, I think, wasn't it the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the chief of the FDNY, wasn't he killed when one of the towers collapsed?
0: Uh, You know, I don't know if the the head chief was. A lot of chiefs were, um, because they had a command post and and one of the towers, maybe both of the towers, and um, yeah, a number of chiefs were inside the towers running the, the scene from the inside. You know, they would have had chiefs on the outside running things, they would have had chiefs on the inside, and so yeah, a number were, were killed. I, I don't know if the actual chief of the FDNY was killed or not, I couldn't answer that.
1: Yeah, it is to this day, it is the deadliest incident in the history of firefighting, and I, I watched a whole bunch of footage um, in doing research for that first episode we did, and damn, that's all yeah, I can it, say. It,
0: it was a, I was not part of the, um, I was a SEAL when when all of that happened, in my I didn't join the fire service until um, 2012 but you know I have since talked to a number of guys on my department here you know a couple thousand miles away um, well you know they remember every second of that day they were in the firehouse uh, you know having their morning coffee getting ready to start the day and just all obviously uh, mesmerized and horrified by everything and it just played out like that across America and fire stations everywhere you know like wow this is the worst case scenario for for firefighters
1: definitely so I, I guess now's a good point for us to get into your uh to your background tell, tell us a little bit about yourself um what year did you join the navy and how did that lead to you um joining the seals
0: so i, I went to um i knew i wanted to be a seal pr- pretty early um maybe ninth grade or so and um i also knew i wanted to go to college and uh i opted for i applied to the naval academy um, i I can't remember if I got my appointment or stopped the process in the middle of getting an appointment, but d- decided I didn't want to go there and would rather have a, a regular college experience. And so did applied for NROTC, the Navy ROTC, which is, um, probably most people know a scholarship program that pays for your tuition and books, um, and kind of pays your way through college. And you, you do a bunch of leadership and officer training while you're in college and you graduate from college, uh, as a commissioned officer in the Navy. So the army has a SMO program as is the air force. It's a, it's a scholarship program essentially that trains officers. And I had during college had to prep for buds all through the four years of college and then had to apply to buds. My, um, I guess it was late junior year, maybe early senior year and then got accepted into buds. So then graduated college, um, that June and then went out to California about a month later and, uh, and started bud so it was a it was a long sort of at least four year if not maybe six year process of kind of planning out how i wanted to do it i mean there's there's multiple ways to get into the seals you know you can enlist and go to boot camp and uh get identified at boot camp into the uh seal community nowadays it's kind of more formalized but back then it was you just applied out of your for for an officer you applied out of your officer program to go and they selected um i think at the time it was like maybe 15 or Twenty guys a year. What year to, was this? To, this was uh, I graduated college in nineteen ninety nine. Hmm. So it was. I started buds in the summer of nineteen ninety nine. A long time ago. Now it seems like.
1: <laughs> so so if somebody joins the navy, and I, I, I guess nowadays, like with the war on terror, there's been a an increase in demand for seals and other soft. Um, so if somebody joins the navy and they get um, identified, as you said how long How long does it would it take somebody to go from enlisting to being in a seal team
0: uh so you have you have to you show up at boot camp um and Great Lakes, Illinois is the big one. I think there's one other boot camp I can't remember honestly now, but uh you you volunteer for the sort of a buds prep program at boot camp. you make it through that i I want to say boot camp is six months but i I don't know I never went through it, so you have to complete boot camp. Get two buds. So you'll arrive at buds from the day you arrive at buds to the day you graduate buds itself. The first phase, fa- the first, um, basic training of becoming a SEAL is roughly six months. Uh, if you don't get rolled back or injured or any- anything else. So if you go straight through, that's about six months. And then you go through advanced SEAL training, um, SEAL qualification training, which I want to say is another year. It was, it was called something different when I went through it and it was done, um, at your individual team. So it, it's a little different now, but I think it's a year and then you'll graduate from SQT or yes, seal qualification training. You'll get your trident, your seal trident at the graduation from SQT. um And, and they will have put you through jump school and um SEER training, like survival training and things like that. And then you will go to your team. So, it, I mean, from the start of boot camp to that, it's it's at a minimum two years, I would say. Wow. If not a little bit longer. And for some guys, and it's so far only guys, but for some people, it's uh, it could be significantly longer. If you get hurt, a second phase of BUDS, say, you know, they may roll you back to restart that phase with the next class. So it can stretch out.
1: When people join the military at, like, age 18, you know, depending on whatever unit they go in, depending on what they're doing and how much training they need, they could they could end up overseas as soon as, like, like that year, basically, in some cases. But in the case of, yeah, like, specialized troops, it takes years
0: yeah i mean we had a we had one eighteen year old in our in my buds class and and the pipeline was probably a little bit shorter back then um and he was i think he was 19 or so when we graduated uh, he was 18 when we started and was probably deployed by definitely by the time he was 20 so that was probably that's pro- probably the quickest uh you can do it
1: wow I just want to ask one more question about the SEALs and we'll get into the war on terror. Uh, who tends to do better, um, in selection, the younger guys or guys who are a little older, more mature?
0: Well, so it's all relative. Uh, what I went through when I was 23 or 24. And at the time I was about the average age. And we had a, we had a 30, we had a 30 year old in the class who I thought was, you know, ancient. And, uh, I think we had one 32 year old that had to get a waiver. Good I Lord. think the cutoff is, I think the cutoff is 29. Um, the 32 year old did not make it and the 30 year old did and was, and, and did great at it. So it's really, um, it, it is the younger, it's all individually, um, dependent. So the 18 year old, for example, you know, was a really mature kid, um, super good athlete and in shape, uh, just really good mental attitude and breezed right through. He was one of only, um, two enlisted guys that started with our original, I think, 110 that made it straight through without getting rolled or pushed back for some reason. just two enlisted guys. And he was one of them. And the other was like, headbit was on his third attempt at Bud's and was like 28. So, you know, I mean, it's all just individual will and individual effort and, um, each person's different. Uh, but, you but they all are pretty much between 18 and 29. There's, there's not many people older than that.
1: Do you know what became of that 18 year old in your Bud's class?
0: Uh, the the last time I saw him it was in Afghanistan he was with um SEAL Team 6 and I was with the CIA so he was wow. great. He could be he could he, at right now he could be retired and uh at like 42 you know cuz he will have done his 20 years yeah so I don't I don't know if he's I'm sure he's a master chief somewhere I mean I'm sure he moved through the ranks
1: well man he went on to have one hell of a career
0: yeah he was he's a great guy I really he was a I I knew him as a kid I will say because he was he was 18 or 19 but I'm sure he's a good Great man
1: now. So you were an active duty Navy SEAL on September 11, 2001. Yes. What was that like?
0: Uh, So that was my, that was my, and I was in the workup. Uh, So you form up a SEAL platoon, you show up to your, you show up to your team, join the team, they kind of welcome you to the team, you get indoctrinated or indoct into the team, meaning admin wise, and sort of you get your SEAL assignment or your platoon assignment, I should say. Uh, I got my platoon assignment as a, um, second officer in charge of this 17 man seal platoon. And then we started our workup, um, our workup, that workup is just means you, you do, you go through all these training blocks to refresh all your skills and, and do some specialized stuff depending on to where you're deploying. And you, at the end of that workup, which was at the time was generally 18 months. You then, um, deployed for six months. So it was a two year cycle, you know, 18 month workup and a two month and a 16, a six month deployment. Uh, we were, um, we were scheduled to deploy in October of 2001. Uh, so we were at the tail, very end of our workup. Um, and we were down in, uh, obviously never forget, like everyone else, we, I was down in, uh, Florida at the Air Force Special Operations Base down there working with the, um, AC 130, uh, gunships, um, and some other Air Force Special Operations units doing call for fire drills. So we essentially, you know, you're, you're, on the ground and you are directing fire from the sky down to enemy forces on the ground. And we had, we started on, I think it was, um, I guess it was a Monday. We started on that Monday night and had worked through the night. And then Tuesday morning on September 11th was our second day of training was supposed to be, um, uh, my, my dad called and woke me up cause we, we slept a little late. It was probably seven or I guess eight o'clock in the morning, but it was seven in the morning and uh central time zone when it all started kicking off and um so he woke me up and said, You need to turn on the T V So we did. The we all kinda of watched it individually and together throughout the morning and then the Air Force special operations units there immediately left and went into theater to pre stage and we They're got going back to in work. our Yeah, we got back in our vehicles and drove back to Virginia Beach and deployed um like about a month later.
1: How many deployments did you do um, while you were in the Navy?
0: I only, I'd only deployed in the Navy as a SEAL one time before I switched over to the CIA. So I was only in the a Navy for about four years, four and a half years, something like that.
1: Okay, so you, so you go to Afghanistan and you come back to the state. I, I'm curious, though, how did that first deployment to Afghanistan go?
0: I I did not deploy to Afghanistan oh. with the SEALs. We are platoons. We had two platoons from our team that deployed in October uh we were we were already on the hook to do Kosovo and back back then Kosovo was still kind of it was it was quieting down. It was not a a huge deal, but it was we were still sending troops there. So we we were on the hook to do that. We obviously still had to do that. We belonged to Special Operations Command Europe for that deployment. Um but we knew it was we hoped and knew and thought it was gonna get everything would get, you know, kinda rejiggered. Um, and we'd get shipped somewhere else. Well, our sister platoon um, that deployed with us ended up going to Afghanistan and doing the initial recon for the airfield um, out there in Bagram. And we got, we b- were put on uh, a ship in the med of all places doing, you know, lead, they called it leadership interdiction operations at the time thinking, I think the thought was some, you know, the Al Qaeda members were going to flee all across the world and sort of, uh, go on the run and, and find other sanctuaries. And we were identified as a unit to help basically track them if they did. So at the time, ev- everyone, you may not know because you're, you're young, uh, but everyone thought everything was going to happen real quickly at the time after 9-11. We're going to get over there, uh, instantly, you know, light everybody up. This war is going to be over in like six months. That was, that was the no crap, uh, initial thought for everybody, inc- myself included. And so we did that, um, Six months of deployment really didn't have, didn't do anything against Al Qaeda that whole six months. Well, it turns out really most of the U.S. military did not do a crap ton against Al Qaeda in that first few months. It took a while to get us up and running. If you, there's a book, a great book that was just came out called The First Casualty that talks about the initial CIA teams that went in with the army special forces in Afghanistan. And it took them a while to get kind of up and running, get the Northern Alliance forces organized um and get you know bombs on target against the Taliban that was about a month long process just to start everything um so it, it, looking back now i understand okay I, that's why i didn't we just were, we were too too quickly deployed after 911 to really have been involved in the major fighting that happened years later but i at young and you know wanting to get into the fight i of course got back and was pretty disappointed and almost like jaded and was like well forget this i'm going to go to the CIA Cause I know those guys are over there and that, that's kind of why it was a big part of why I jumped from the SEALs to the CIA after that one deployment was to get over to the agency who I knew was operating more in theater. And, and that did turn out to be the case. And that was ultimately I ended up going over there under the CIA deployment.
1: I, I'm just curious. So, so the guys who did get sent to Afghanistan, were they, did they end up participating in the battle of Takargar?
0: No, they were, they went into the, South, and, um, it wasn't, there was, theirs was a, um, I guess you called a surveillance reconnaissance type mission just to identify and, and not necessarily seize, but, um, get eyes on the ground of a potential airfield for big U.S. military to land and establish a foothold. So the, the big U.S. military started out getting a foothold in the north. Um, that's where we, that's where the U.S. government initially made its entry into the Afghanistan. Because the CIA had a long-running um, relationship with the Northern Alliance, and there were a handful of officers that had been going in and out of Afghanistan for a few years before. So that was the the initial forces came into the north, um like mazar sharif area and the Panjshir Valley. And then the south was pretty prohibitive. We couldn't really find a way, we meaning the U.S. military primarily, couldn't find a way to get across Pakistan's border down in the tribal areas into southern afghanistan without uh needing a, just a big amount of forces so they, they didn't they didn't want to do that with a small footprint and so that's what you know that as many other factors is what led to uh the the mission instead becoming okay let's go find an airfield you know seize it and establish a um a sort of the start of a base that we can then fly in you know, battalions worth of, of infantry and things like that. So the South was a different animal than the North. The North, we had forces there that could protect and be augmented by small numbers of U.S. forces.
1: So, so is that, is that why Afghanistan went from being primarily an unconventional war to a conventional war?
0: That, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Because it, that and because it, you know, the initial, um, the, the I, I shouldn't say the initial, focus for everyone from the national security council uh, you know which is the president and his advisors down to the lowest private in the u.s military the initial focus was al-qaeda like we're going to go in and we're going to overthrow the taliban because they're housing al-qaeda and then we're just going to decimate al-qaeda well that that part of it and that and that was always for the most part the cia's mission almost the entire 20 years although even the cia's mission sort of morphed um down the road into more you know they, they had to into building a government and and um countering the taliban but the cia was never really focused on the taliban as anything more than a uh hindrance to getting to al-qaeda but yeah that was so it started out that way as a sort of insurgent almost type of warfare which the u.s army special operations forces the green Berets, are ex- extre- extremely good at that's their bread and butter almost um, which is why they were initially chosen to go in with the CIA teams. And, but then as the more and more U.S. forces arrived and, and get started engaging the Taliban, uh, it, you know, it was almost like this divide. The U.S. military was very focused on the Taliban and, uh, and defeating them and establishing control of the country. That's, that's understandable. That's kind of what they do. Whereas the C, at least my part of the CIA, and I would say, uh, 80% of the CIA's brain power and effort went to continuing to track al qaeda so it was almost these dual tracks um you know from the get go and i knew go, you know when i made the switch from the seals to the cia that i only wanted to be on that al qaeda track i i didn't want to have anything to do with you know going out and having little skirmishes with um you know bands of taliban fighters that, you know in my brain that was not what i wanted i wanted to go after the 911 gr- people the people responsible for 911 and that's what I was able to do at the CIA, which was, you know, they were really the lead agency from the get-go for going after al-Qaeda's leadership.
1: It's interesting, like, some some CIA officers who serve in Afghanistan, they, they seem to be of the opinion that we should focus solely on al-Qaeda, and then others seem to have, like, the complete opposite viewpoint that it is, like, for, for some of them, they'll, they'll make the argument, that like, we got to, like, defeat the Taliban in order to prevent al-Qaeda from having a safe haven to launch attacks from.
0: Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I will hazard a guess that the, if you sat down 10 CIA officers, at least then, maybe 15 years ago or, or more or 10 years ago, anywhere in the last 20 years and said, and you asked those 10 that question and the, the three that would have answered, we need to, you know, create a stable Afghanistan, defeat the Taliban and get this country up and running. They would have been from the, what, and the CIA is called the Near East Division. And that's a, it's a, still an intelligence, obviously, uh, focused section of the cia's directorate of operations but it it is the same it's the equivalent of us the latin america division for example that would focus on the internal politics of ecuador how do we get information on the inner workings of this government you know work to stabilize this government if that's our goal and and get and know what's happening in that in that government well that that's what the area divisions within the cia do I was in the counterterrorism division. <laughs> we are. We don't. We didn't care a single whisker about any of that, and we're just solely focused on Al Qaeda. So I think that's where that division would have been found. Mm-hmm. You know, if you took took those ten officers, the three that would have given you that answer would have been any division officers that were more focused on, and, and it's their job. So you can't blame them. That were more focused on the inner workings of the uh, the Afghan government. the defeating of an insurgency that was affecting the country in which they were assigned you know that's that's what um cia officers do around the world um it just so happens and that's why they create centers like the counterterrorism centers to only focus on the terrorism aspects and not be engaged in the inner workings of the afghan government i just i didn't give a flying crap about that no one that was in ctc cared less about that we we had a a Single-minded focus on hunting down Al Qaeda members. So, uh, as we were supposed to, that, that was our job.
1: Yeah, yeah, and plus, I, I mean, like every American felt something. I mean, almost every American felt something similar to what you were describing, where we wanted to go after the people who did nine eleven. We wanted to get them Correct. back for that.
0: Yeah, that was the initial. That was the initial laser focus, and that obviously uh, sort of fragmented over the years and turned into um, we need to give afghanistan liberal democracy you know the small l and freedom and human rights uh, obviously i understand that uh that desire and that that's a worthy honorable intention but you know that's not how it started it started let's go break this the back of this uh terrorist organization that's trying to kill us
1: yeah disrupt the infrastructure right so, so you served in the CIA as what's known as a collection management officer. I'm sure that when people hear that you're, you were a Navy SEAL who joined the CIA, they immediately imagine you were one of the paramilitary guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. What, what is a, what does a collection management officer do? How does that differ from the popular image of a NA- a former SEAL serving in the CIA? Well,
0: so I, I have to get into the weeds of the organization to explain it. the The CIA is a, is a big place, um kind of not compared to the military, but it, it's not a small organization. Within it, there's the du- Directorate of Intelligence, Directorate of Operations, Directorate of Science and Technology, and these other directorates. the The classic CIA quote unquote spy that everyone thinks of is in the Directorate of Operations. That's the people that go out and recruit spies and steal secrets and write intelligence reports. That's the bread and butter of the DO and, and covert actions. Um, so, you know, say and covert action is a real sexy term for any action. The government of the United States wants to take that that they don't want attributed back to the government of the United States. That's what the DO has always done since it started within the DO. You have, um, these sort of positions for lack of a better word, and they're, they're fluid. Um, and their job titles Uh, So there's a operations officer, otherwise known as a case officer, which is the bread and butter guy out there stealing the secrets, recruiting the spies and writing the intelligence reports. There's the staff operations officer that is generally back at headquarters, although not always. That is um doing a lot of the support work for those operations. Getting money to the case officers and their sources, running traces on contacts, investigating backgrounds of various people who are interested in that kind of stuff. So it's um it's called
1: staff operations officer. I'd love to see There's a colli- spy novel about that job.
0: <laughs> right. They're in movies and, and T V shows generally, they just don't ever make the differentiation, or they have the same person doing all the jobs.
1: Oh yeah,
0: that sucks. And, and then and the C the CMO is uh, the collection management officer is basically, it, in the traditional sense, it, say you were only a CMO, not to denigrate the position, but that was your only thing you did at the DO. And there are some people that were direct hired as CMOs. That means they never received any training to be operations officers, i.e. recruit spies, um, make clandestine drops, operate, you know, in austere environments. If they'd ever received any of that training, then they would be mainly at headquarters. Receiving intelligence reports, um, validating them, uh, corroborating them, running them to the, um, making sure they go to the right people in the U.S. government. That's a, that's, it's collection management. It's just what it sounds like. They would tell the case officers, hey, stop asking these questions. We don't care about that. Ask the following questions. That, that's very much a simplified way of saying it, but that's really what they did. You also could come into the DO, um, uh, as a career, as a clandestine services trainee. Which is was called a CST. A CST j- joins the agency, and they do. Um, and I don't know what they do now, but at the time, they they would do maybe a class or two a year of those. Those were the you know in the movies you always see like they go out to these college campuses and recruit this kid like you, we're bringing you to the CIA. I knew that, your father. The, yeah, yeah, that's what the CST yeah. program was. Well I came in through the CST program, and in the CST program you all go through all the training to be case officers. So the CMOs the SUS, staff operations officers, and the and the OOs, case officers, all go through the same pipeline and at the end of that pipeline they sort of spread out into the into their various jobs, always having then thereafter the qualification to serve anywhere as a case officer, because they had the training. But that they just identified themselves as wanting to perform this certain role. Well I did that as a and I chose to primarily focus as a CMO and it was a lot of family reasons and you're, you can, you can be in the States a little bit more as a CMO hmm. um, and, and the subject. And you just, you got to be more of a subject matter expert as a CMO, which I appealed to my brain, but I, okay. so I deployed, I deployed overseas with the CIA once to Europe as a CMO. And then when I deployed to Afghanistan, I deployed as a case officer and did case officer work. And, that, and I worked at headquarters in both too. So it's a, it's a fluid um system and it, it all depends on the training you went through the farm, which everybody sort of knows of where they train CIA case officers. I went through the farm just like everybody else. We all went, go through the farm. If you're a CST and have that training and qualification, we can deploy in those positions whenever we want. Really. Um, it, it's just a matter of, it, g- it gave me a little more flexibility to choose a CMO role. Cause I could then, I could serve in any of those capacities if I wanted to a case officer. Is a little different in that a case officer asking to serve in a CMO position for say a year or two, say want wanted to be back in the States for two years. Um, it's a little harder for a case officer to get away, get away with that. They were really expected to be overseas 95% of their career. Mm. And I, I had a, at the time I had a wife that was a doctor and, um, I just knew I would needed some time back in the States. So that was the primary reason I made that
1: choice. So to the, to the extent you're allowed to say, how, how was the CIA approaching counterterrorism when you started there? and what changes did you observe over your career I, I should also ask what year did you join the cia and then by what year were you doing what by what year were you considered like a full-fledged officer
0: uh, uh <laughs> i officially joined i'll we'll just say in the, somewhere around the middle of the decade the first decade of of the 2000s okay is when i joined shortly after i got out of the navy in 2003 i was and i had joined the cia the process to get trained there was, um, I would say just over a year, maybe a year and a half at the most, um, to go from walking in the front door and doing the a completely exhaustive, extensive in processing of becoming a CIA officer to the graduating from the farm and, and being handed your, so you, at the farm, you, towards the end, you, uh, identify like your, you know, your three choices of where you want to work. So say you're, uh, um, you know, a Panamanian American, you join the CIA, you really want to work in South America and in Central America and Mexico and use your heritage and sort of leverage, you know, all your, the people, you know, back there, you would, you would put in for, if that was what you wanted, um you would put in to go to Latin America division, which is what it was called at the time. And maybe it's called something different now, but, Mission um, America. and more than like yeah. And, and more than likely they give you that because it's in everybody's interest. So I chose and knew going in, I wanted to choose CTC because uh, that's what I wanted to do was counterterrorism, so that that was my first choice, and I got it um, reported to counterterrorism center at CIA, and then um, just was immediately put on an account and started becoming knowledgeable of the you know granular detail of Al Qaeda um, back at headquarters. Um, I I volunteered immediately, <laughs> like day one, getting there, told made it, made no secret of the fact that I was like, I want to go to Afghanistan now and you know of course they have to be like everybody w- was that way in the first couple of years after um after 911 well, but I shouldn't say everybody everybody at the CIA who wanted to work counterterrorism because there was a, f- a lot of people at the CIA that didn't want to be in the counterterrorism game that's not what they joined for they joined to you know sort of wade through the diplomatic circuit recruit traditional spies you know get state secrets obviously understandable and we need that and always will so but of the those of us that did want to be in the counterterrorism fight there was enough where they were like, you know, hold your horses, learn the account, you know, learn the stuff you're going after, sort of get immersed in it at headquarters um, by supporting the field operations, and then you'll get your chance. So that's what I did for about uh, maybe maybe a year or less. I had to sort of learn the the account. What,
1: Eventually, what exactly does account mean? Because um, I've heard other CIA, CIA officers say use that word. I just – what exactly does that refer also, to?
0: So uh, – just take, just take for example Afghanistan and Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. So there's there's Al Qaeda, and even at the time there was Al Qaeda in various parts of the world. So there were some Al Qaeda elements in Africa, there were some in East Asia, um, like Indonesia area. Uh, there you know there were some in um, the Levant, you know, and well there wasn't any in Syria at that time. But to say there's those those various areas. Well, you you don't work all those areas as a CIA officer. You, you specialize quite a bit. So, for example, my first assignment, I believe that my very first assignment was um, for Iraq, CTC Iraq. So, the, the desk was CTC Iraq. I was tracking Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and learning all about the inner workings of CTC Iraq and what was going on in Iraq with al-Qaeda at the time, which was pretty uh, extensive back then. Uh, that, these were the early days of Zarqawi, zarqawi um, and when he was you know, first starting to become this brutal sort of successor to bin Laden in Iraq and was breaking away from al-Qaeda. So I, I worked that account. I went to Iraq uh, for a short time and, you know, you just, be, you become immersed in CTC Iraq issues. So I, I was not getting to care so much about, um, by the fact of my job position, couldn't really spend as much time as I frankly wanted to doing Al Qaeda and Afghanistan and Pakistan stuff. I was focused on Al Qaeda and Iraq stuff, but, but that was fine. I, you know, that's the whole thing is one giant organization. So it was good to do that. I worked that account for a while. Then arranged for myself, um, sort of worked to the inner system there. And, you know, just by talking to the people that were running operations in Afghanistan and Pakistan, I went and talked to them quite a bit and got myself a, a, uh, position as a case officer and a a remote base in Afghanistan. So then I kind of knew that about eight months before I was supposed to go. And then, so I transitioned to the desk that covered Al Qaeda central leadership. um, or al Qaeda senior leadership, but I guess it was called in Afghanistan pekken right and so that was the that was really the core of al Qaeda which is where I always wanted to be. I got on that desk worked that worked all the internal issues for the base I was going to for like six months, so that by the time I got there i was I, I was as knowledgeable as anyone that had been there for um, you know a year at least in terms of the the, the personalities of al Qaeda that we were following and the and the system their structure and sort of their support system. We were trying to penetrate and all. So it's a great system. I mean, I was impatient to go through it at the time, but you know, it turned out to be a good, a good thing for me to do because I, I walked into the door and was especially working it from a CMO angle at headquarters. Really, I mean, I was as knowledgeable of the intelligence coming out of that part of Afghanistan as anyone in the CIA at the time, which really helped me when I got there within a few weeks of getting there. I was. Uh, um, again, we got sort of handed the role of the subject matter expert, and I ended up running the base in the absence of the chief of base when he would go back to the states for, you know, weeks at a time or whatever. They would, I would run the base there because I sort of had the most knowledge of what was happening, um, you know, in terms of the inner workings of Al Qaeda that we were, that we were focused on.
1: That must have been one hell of a responsibility.
0: That oh, it was great. I mean, it was, it's, it's easy to manage, uh, when everybody has the same, when when everyone's on the same page and has the same focus, it's real easy to manage a group of people. You know, it's like a football team. Everybody wants to win. That's what, That's why we're here seven days a week. Oh, it's just like there. We were there to kill Al Qaeda or capture them, and that and nobody had any uh, notion of us being there for any other reason.
1: So I, I've heard you. You mentioned on other podcasts that you uh, you first went to Afghanistan. And then you just, then you spent some time working in Europe. How did those two experiences differ from each other?
0: Oh, it was, it was an absolute nightmare. I went from Afghanistan, came back, um, felt, you know, did great work, felt like I did great work, really was making a difference, like, you know, directly contributed to, you know, taking senior leaders of Al Qaeda off playing field. And then, um, I, and I knew I was leaving. I mean, the tour was going to be up and, uh, they, they originally were going to send me to Mali in West Africa, which I thought would have been great. Um, but then decided, uh, just for internal reasons and personnel reasons that I was going to Europe and, uh, still it was going to work the Al Qaeda account in Europe, you know, cause Al Qaeda was, by then was already, had already attacked in, um, London. Um, and, and the Europeans had just as many problems with them as we did by then. It was if not a few more. years after nine, if not more, it was a few years after 9 11 and they were starting to infiltrate. Foreign fighters were coming back by that point. So I, that was fine with me. And, uh, but I got there and it was just a nightmare. I couldn't, the, the focus was not there. You know, that the place I was, um, they, they had more than the mission of, uh, terrorism. It's a European CIA station. So they have, they've got political issues to deal with, with, you know, pen, for example, you know, say, uh, let's use a hypothetical country. So I don't get myself in any trouble. Say there's yeah. this, um, bad guy and we, you know, we want to know exactly what's happening in that country. Well, there's a big group of people in Europe that are working on that issue and really don't give two flying craps about Al Qaeda. So it was just really hard. Uh, I don't, I hesitate to call it P- PTSD, but I just could not acclimatize to the change in lifestyle and it was kind of angry and just bitter and didn't like my boss initially and I uh, just had a hard time sort of assimilating but then family stuff took over and I had a kid and um you know I was able to sort of like decompress from Afghanistan and by the end of it um it was it was fine and I enjoyed my time there but it was just a whole different world you know even still working the, the terrorism target it was not the same
1: mm. so um so in Europe at least were were you working under what people call official cover or diplomatic cover
0: I was, yeah, I was, a, and I was even a declared CIA officer. So you can be overseas, and you can, so you, there's various ty- and people can read this in books, so So it's not it's no secret, but you know there's various types of cover you can operate under um, when you're at the CIA or even be at the CIA under like cover for status, we call it. Um, you know where you don't in, in any way, shape, or form work for the CIA, um, or you do work there, and you're and you deploy and get. overseas in an official cover capacity and that's what i was um but i was also declared to the host country so they the host country where i I was knew that i was a cia officer because i did a lot of liaison work with them and and i in fact i met with them quite a bit uh, about terrorism issues almost weekly Uh, so every country is different in terms of how we interact there and it's all dependent on what we want out of the relationship and what the, how the country thinks of us and how we think of them and it, there's just considerations everywhere there's no CIA does not do uh they're very good at they don't take there's no boilerplate so you you do what you have to do in a certain place or country to get the job done so they're good they're real good at that it's a much more agile organization than the military in that respect
1: were, were you did you work under official cover when you were in afghanistan though before that
0: no Afghanistan was wild west so okay. there was no there's n- there's no need for any kind of cover there because you're there's there was no central government there to even check in with <laughs> it <Like, laughs> you, you know you, like in a in a traditional country say in uh, Europe you know you show up with your diplomatic passport and sort of you you get declared here's our new diplomat here's his credentials he's now representing America and here here you go host government this is who he is. That's generally how that works in Afghanistan or in any kind of a uh, war zone. There is no tracking of who's coming and going. So I, my only cover there was, you know, I'm John from the CIA, you know, like, <laughs> they, and that was, if I, if we even chose to tell people we were from the CIA, but oftentimes we just didn't mention it. And they all kind of knew, but
1: any American showing up in a place like that, even if they're not CIA, people just point at them. <laughs> Look at the CIA yeah, guy right. over there.
0: That's right. Yeah. Like the, the AC maintenance guy that worked on the base. (laughs) Surely he's in the CIA. Don't trust him. He's putting sensors in the air conditioners, planning bugs. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So, so when you're working under diplomatic cover, like you actually are working as a diplomat sometimes though, right?
0: Yes. You you do have responsibilities in that regard because you're an embassy employee. Um, you know, you can't escape as much as we want to. Um, and again, it may be different in other countries I haven't been to, but as much as we want to, we, or as much as we want to avoid working uh, non CIA issues, it just occasionally has to happen because you're a, you're still a part of that embassy team. So, I, you know, for example, I would get the duty phone on weekends, uh, like once every couple months, um, and get ridiculous, absurd calls. You know, at two in the morning about Americans doing dumb shit in that European country that had to be sorted out. So yeah, you, you did have, you had some official roles from the state department point of view. <laughs> if they made the movies and novels, like the reality, people would be like, man, are you kidding me? This is not what it's like. I mean, it would be like, you know, one day of heightened excitement and adventure and just amazingly cool shit. And you're like, they really do do the things I thought. And then the next you'd be like, you literally see them walking around <laughs> with the duty phone, like filling out paperwork. Mm-hmm. If it, it, the movie alone would have to be 80% paperwork, <laughs> you know, as in the CIA, there's a saying, nothing, nothing happened in that meeting with a source for example or a clandestine uh, operation nothing happened on that operation if you don't write it down so you for every one hour operational act it was about a three hour write-up so like and that's just so one day
1: it's jason Bourne, the next day it's chuck
0: (laughs) i don't know if it ever gets to the jason Bourne level that's almost absurd we're not going around like judo chopping you know german police officers (laughs) For the most part. Yeah. But yeah, for, for all intents and purposes, one day it's Jason Bourne. Yeah. The next it's office space.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, that's, that's really no joke. There, there, there was plenty of days where I was like, you got to be kidding me. I got to do what? Are we working at the CIA? You know, like I'm getting like a, you know, one day you're getting like a bag of, you know, unmarked hundred dollar bills that you have to deliver to some source. You're like, all right, this is what I signed up for. And the next day it's like, okay, now we need all your accounting and your receipts for all these things you purchased for operational acts in the last month like are you kidding me i gotta do what
1: i'm just imagining like the office where like where like the character's being interviewed documentary style
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would be a fantastically good show i'd watch it. i mean american dad's almost the closest thing you have to you know to that sort of parody of it. yeah it's hard to get uh it's hard to find good realistic and good cia movies obviously
1: i mean i I've been I've been dabbling in fiction writing for a while. It's actually kind of how I fell into this whole terrorism nerd stuff. I was recher- researching for books I wanted to write, and then I kind of also just fell into podcasting as a result. Um, so yeah, I, when I was in high school, I, I actually have right next to me like a couple different memoirs written by uh, former former CIA officers. Uh, okay. Yeah. Did you? Only-
0: yeah, you should. You should definitely check out the first casualty. I can't. I'm, for the life of me, I can't remember the author. And it just came out, you know, a couple of weeks ago. It, it's fantastically good so far. I'll look it up. It's and it's really just about the initial entry into uh, Northern Afghanistan and how we started, the, how the war started. You know, r- the very first
1: days. Yeah. Okay. So he's talking about Michael Spann.
0: Yeah, it's generally about Michael Spann, and, and but that whole team of guys. You know, it was a good, nice eclectic mix of uh, CIA officers and green berets and it's it it gives a good little taste of what that kind of cia operation what runs like you know it's very uh sort of you know at once see to your pants and you know kind of rule book out the window in very many ways but then there's also always constraints that everybody operates under even cia officers operate under some constraints so it, it does a good job of uh laying all that kind of stuff out
1: yeah So we got about, um, just under 10 minutes. I wanted to ask you at least one more question, maybe two more if we have time. All right. All right. This, this next one would be just, this could be just a simple yes or no question. Um, did did you, uh, did you work on anything other than counterterrorism when you were in the CIA? Um, yes, only by, because, um, when you're,
0: for example, in Europe and, opportunities present themselves against certain targets you 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 know you're you'd be derelict if you did not seize on those i Mm -hmm. I didn't really want to but you know you sort of have to sometimes
1: so if they just like they just need help with something you get called up and you gotta assist them with it
0: i mean it's more like you you might be at a a party with a bunch of uh foreign diplomats and some you know let's throw out a random country some uh say our big target country de jure was uh um, we'll pick one that is definitely not like ethiopia yeah and say this e- say this ethiopian colonel just struck up a conversation with you and you're all of a sudden gonna go have a beer with him well that's that's a if that was a country of high interest to u.s government you'd be expected to pursue that operational lead so that's always that's sort of a running um responsibility it's like a it's like a cop if you're a cop driving on the street and you see a crime happening you you have <laughs> by definition you've got to stop and sort of engage it yeah
1: I remember you listening to you on the team house talking, telling a story about meeting a uh, an intelligence officer from a different country at a party. And <laughs> yeah. you two were trying to recruit each other, basically.
0: Yeah, it was just one big fruitless, ridiculous dance we were both doing. <laughs> I think we both really just wanted to stop even trying and just have some vodka and then call it a day. But you know, we each had our job and our role to play.
1: I don't know why that sounds like that sounds like a couple of dates I've been on.
0: <laughs> things like that happen you bump up against you know say an iranian you know you bump up against an iranian in northern iraq you know in 2007 oh. or any time really you know well you just the two of you know you know you, you both know if you're both intelligence officers you both know okay this is an american i'm are there certain things i'm supposed to do in this situation well the american has the same responsibilities okay this is an iranian there's certain things i need to do in this situation so you, that's always that's all sort of part of the farm training that you know that teaches you the nuts and bolts of your job so that you know what to do at the right time to do it. You know, generally.
1: All right. So I should also ask what what year did you leave the CIA? Right around 2011. Okay.
0: As when as when I was officially left there.
1: So having served in the CIA for a period of years during the or ultimately during the first half of the war on terror, what what would you say is the mo- What are the most important things that Americans need to know about counterterrorism and also the war on terror in general?
0: Uh, I mean, I, I, we would, we all hope, and we all that worked that target um, hope, hoped that they understood that, you know, we were as intensely focused, if not magnitudes of order more so on uh, defeating Al Qaeda as they wanted us to be. You know, there were, there, there was, you know, a number of people that had, you know, the pictures of the jumping man off of the, the tower on nine eleven that's, you know, going in a head first dive. I mean those that picture was all over C D C. Everybody had the same drive that the common American had after that day. And really that's what drove all of us. Um so we you know we always hoped and we always kinda knew or suspected that they did know that. Um but, you know, there wasn't a, nobody was sitting around like, you know, this is not a big deal. Like this will blow over. You know, it was just never that way. It was always a relentless, in almost manic um effort to to degrade Al Qaeda. So, you know, that's, uh, you always hope everybody understands that we're doing that. You know, they expect us to be, and, uh, and we were. Um, and I, even after I left, I'm sure that focus was still there. You know, it, it changes over time and morphs and, uh, becomes a different thing and different groups become ascendant. But, um, yeah, that's, that's the main thing. What was the second part of your question?
1: Um, I was also wondering, what's, what would you say is the most important thing Americans need to know about the war on terror?
0: Uh, so, well, so it's an infinitely slow, tedious, um, difficult and, uh, not at all, um, clear cut effort. You know, it's a, I would achen it to a sort of like a murder investigation where you, you know, you've got to piece together and the hunt for bin Laden is the perfect example. I mean, it was 10 years of, just p- constantly piecing together all these little pieces, a huge team effort. You know, you, no one ever, in the movies have to make it, you know, where these one or two people were the, you know, central players. That is in no way the case. I mean, it was, it was definitely less than hundreds that really, um, or maybe hundreds that played, you know, a integral first-hand role in, in something like that. But it's, it's just a piece by piece, slow, uh, methodical, Dedicated, um, just willing to go down every rabbit hole and and follow every lead until it plays out. And you know, you may have ten leads, um, and and two of them, if you're lucky, will pan out into some sort of actionable, you know, workable intelligence that was actually going to make a difference in degrade al Qaeda. I, I think people think it's just a simple plant a bug on this car and follow it to Bin Laden. I mean, it just isn't that way. It's it's a very difficult um when a group is is as diffuse, diffuse as al qaeda is and is operationally savvy and, and hezbollah for example is the same way you know you just it's a you got to be willing to put the effort and the time in uh, as a country that if you're really going to make a difference and we and we were willing and have been willing to do that you know it, we're kind of at the turning point of that now we're not sure that same um focus exists today because other op- other things pop up to become more important you know it's just that's the nature of life uh but for that at least for that 10-year period i mean that's what it was it was it was a hundred percent focus um to the detriment of many other issues really but that that's what you have to do sometimes you just gotta knuckle down and and focus on one thing and get it done and we very much did that at least in ctc now there was always people that whole time working other targets and other issues um you know russia and china never went away but the, the, the resources and the energy and the briefings in the White House and the questions from the president were, were mainly directed towards CT work for that 10 year period, um, as they should have been, in my opinion, um, because that was our primary threat. You know, it, the political leaders only have so much attention they can give a certain topic. Um, and that was definitely the center of attention.
1: Definitely um so we're coming in on an hour do you have time for just one more question or do you have to like yeah
0: no no i can answer one more okay
1: all right this will be the last one i i saved this one for the end because uh <laughs>
0: what's my what's my favorite beer is this gonna be like one of those
1: what's your favorite beer i'd like to know
0: <laughs> no, no i'm just kidding I-
1: I'll pass on that. But like, I I I save this to the end because like I know that there's a there are certain things you cannot disclose publicly. The last thing I want to do is get you in any trouble. How much are you allowed to say about enhanced interrogation and targeted killings? Oh, zero. Okay, okay, okay.
0: I mean, I can't. I can tell you. So from a legal and political angle, um, I mean, I can tell you. The, the cia there are not dummies you know they for a long time early on in the cia you know the cia would be told to do something by a political leader and then they would do it and then they would be sort of thrown to the wolves for plausible deniability oh that wasn't us the cia was went rogue um that's I, and everybody understands why that has to happen you know that sometimes has to happen that but by the Time the war on terror kicked off um they had learned many many lessons so ev- I, I can authoritatively say every single thing ever done that uh in the realm of lethal strikes and enhanced interrogation techniques and it's been in the press but every measure every single trigger pull was always approved by political leaders first and was and the cia Never would have done, undertaken those, no, knowing what they'd gone through in years past and the blame that gets laid at their doorstep and people go to jail and whatnot. They, they were, the CIA lawyers, particularly, were very uh, determined that everything they did that was even remotely could create that kind of controversy and was bumped up against those kind of moral lines. They made sure all of that was, um, approved by and directly ordered by, uh, someone that was in a political position of power that was, you know, the ultimate bearer of responsibility. So I know for a fact that that's how it worked. Um, and because you, and that's the way it should be. You, people that, you know, our, our national leadership should make those kind of decisions when it's something as, uh, um, sensitive and uh that's bumping up against the moral fiber of the of the country at large that you want your political leaders making those decisions not bureaucrats and not um you know lower level sort of uh guys like me that were that were that wasn't the first first thing in our mind you know it wasn't the uh at an individual level yes i have a moral lines i would never cross things like that but you you as an american citizen wouldn't want me Worrying about that in the field, you'd want me getting the job done. You want, but your political leaders, you absolutely want them worrying about that sort of thing and and making those decisions and weighing the good and the bad and the negative and positive of those kind of actions. And that's what and that's how it went. So and, and that's not to shift blame from the CIA. There's you know they still uh, agree to do that. I mean, they, the CIA can tell political leaders we're not doing this, um, and I think some have in the past. But um, it's not them. It's not the CIA on its own act. You know, acting on its own and making yeah. these decisions that it's it's the people that are representing the country as a whole you you don't have to agree with those decisions but you know if you don't then ele- you know take vote them out of office
1: yeah like the popular yeah. image of uh of some intelligence agency going off on their own and doing their own thing without any input at all from like the head of state that almost never happens in real <laughs> life in most countries with like a few exceptions no exa-
0: exactly exactly and, th- and that's not to say they don't break rules and push the envelope but they're doing it there, when a CIA officer on the ground is pushing the envelope and, and breaking the rules, quote unquote, it is the internal bureaucratic limitations of the agency that he's that he or she is generally pushing up against the you know, you can't. uh I'll just take a random example. We're not going to um, evacuate this Afghan interpreter because uh, he doesn't have the right form filled out. And even though he's been helping us for 10 years, we're leaving him in, in, in Kabul. That CIA officer very well might take it upon himself to be like, you know what, F you guys, I'm putting this guy on a plane and you can sort it out with them in Tashkent. And so that kind of thing, yes, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, because it absolutely does, where an officer makes an individual decision. But that's not, that officer's not deciding some giant strategic decision, we are are not going to evacuate detainee or uh, uh, interpreters from Afghanistan. They're just within that decision that was made, they might make individual decisions that bump up against certain rules and policies, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it does.
0: And then that's really the extent of what your, you know, average CA officer is doing in terms of pushing the envelope. You know, they're not out there freaking, there's, they're not out there Jason Borning and deciding (laughs) to kill world leaders on their own. Like, forget it. I'm going after Kim Jong-un.
1: Yeah. (laughs)
0: I mean that's that's just absurd.
1: I was having a conversation recently with one of my aunts. She's a she's a big fan of Ronald Reagan, and I kind of we sort of got into it about the Iran Contra. And yeah, and her her po- the, her point was basically, well, that doesn't count because that was the CIA. Those people are crazy. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wait, 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 wait uh, hang on, hang on. Uh. Everything they do hey, gets approved by yeah. the National Security Council. Is it right? Am I, am right. I wrong?
0: Well, oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, definitely. Anything, yes, Any, especially anything that is sensitive, like giving <laughs> giving arms to Iran. That would that would never happen without someone in a political leadership position saying to do it. Yeah, and, and don't and don't believe otherwise. Yeah, it's the nature of the of the. The system, and that's fine. We're mostly okay with that being the whipping boys. And, uh, cause a lot of it, it comes with a lot of mystery and cachet too that oftentimes helps us in our work. Um, wh- and when everyone thinks you're all powerful and can do whatever you want, it, that's helpful. <laughs> that's very, very helpful at times. Yeah. When we're trying to recruit spies and they want to be like, oh man, I really do want to work for you. You know, you, you guys are all powerful. So, I mean, it, it can benefit. And, and any shadowy secretive organization is going to be thought of that way. It's just the na- it's human nature. Yeah. I can just say, having worked inside those shadows, it, it, we're, you know, there's not as much, uh, superhero stuff going on as you might think there is. <laughs> I try to tell people that all the time. Like, don't glamorize these guys. Well, they're just like you doing a job. Well,
1: well, I'll, I'll, you say that, but like, Mr. Butler, if there, anybody could be called a superhero. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, come on.
1: I mean, you've been, you've no, been huh? a Navy SEAL, a spy, and a fighter fire. You've been everything most boys want to be when they're growing up, other than maybe a cop.
0: Uh that that's because that's because I'm just a giant boy trying to like have fun I'd call it a career. I've never really had a real job and I like to keep it that way.
1: Well, sir, you you sound like a man who has who has lived life well.
0: <laughs> I try to, that's the goal. Yeah.
1: I uh I feel like I have to say, I mean, thank you for your service to our country and to your community as a firefighter, and also for coming onto the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for focusing some attention on it. I appreciate it. Where can people find you on social media? Or if you even want
0: uh, that.
1: I, yeah, I run my Twitter account,
0: uh, Sof, Sofru1, F F one I mean, it's filled with meaningless and useless trivia and music and my rambling. So if you, if you feel like you can handle that, go for it. I write for um, Sandbox News, um, which is a great uh, military-focused um, website. It's, it's a very non-political sort of uh, everything that anyone that's in active duty or might want to go active duty kind of can read up on everything from, uh, you know, what's boot camp like for a Marine to, you know, how do I select for Delta Force? I mean, it's got, it tries to cover all those kind of bases. So it's a re- it's really well run. Uh, it's got a great editor in chief. Uh, he's on Twitter also, Alex Hollings. Yeah. So that's primarily, primarily where I write now. Uh, so those two, that's really where I communicate with the public the most.
1: All right. Well, Mr. Jeff Butler, thank you so much for coming on The Terror.
0: (laughs) I appreciate you having me. Thanks a lot.
1: You've been listening to The Terror, a podcast about 9-11, what led to it, and its aftermath. We're operating on a new schedule now. We're going to try to put out episodes on the 11th of every month. Yeah, we missed October 11th. Honestly, things have not turned out quite how we expected. We've had to make a lot of changes of plans. This is coming out on November 11th, 2021. Our next episode should be out on December 11th. That will be a real episode. this was a fun bonus episode. I loved talking to Mr. Jeff Butler. He had a lot of valuable things to say, but we do need to get back to the main narrative, examining the history of what led up to 9-11. So in the next episode, we're gonna go back in time, all the way back hundreds of years, and work our way to the 20th century to start wrapping our heads around the trends and forces that have led to the modern world we live in today, including its most terrifying aspects. This has been The Terror.